sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used to research our show and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. So I almost feel I should apologize for promoting that disaster of a meteor shower with our last show. We saw a couple. I didn't see anything, and I deeply regret leaving the house for it. We went on the roof. That's not exactly leaving the house. Leaving my study. You weren't even looking up. You were just mad about the roof. Well, it so happens that the decking on the widow's walk is rotten, and I put my foot through it as soon as we stepped out. So that will be another huge restoration expense. You said that contractor was going to give you a low bid. Mr. Davis is a thief. Why would I trust him to fix the roof. Oh, you mean because of the watch? Yes, I don't see any other explanation for it, unless you hit it. You complained when you got a free watch, and now you're angry it's gone. I don't like the idea of people walking off with my things for some silly reason. He wasn't even near the watch. Actually, we came down to the study afterwards for some paperwork before he left, and I saw him looking at it. I don't like the idea of him having it either, you know. Mother wanted it to go to you. Uh, If you didn't hear last time, Mrs. Carswell's mother somehow entered the house unseen a few weeks back and deposited a watch on an upper bookshelf. Plausible as that may be. My late father's watch. Yes, and that's all the more reason we should both be angry. I imagine it has some sentimental value for you. Well, that's complicated. Oh, well, I just assumed... I didn't even know Mother kept his watch. It kind of surprised me since she... Well... Oh, I didn't mean to stir up any... He wasn't like us, Mother and I. He wouldn't even go near the bees. But he did have a serious allergy, to be fair. Oh, well, that sounds... Difficult. You could say that. She got rid of his things. She said they had a bad energy to them. I remember her burning all his clothes in the fire pit. Oh, that would be traumatic or, or hard to understand for a child. How old were you? Eight. The worst was all the shouting when my uncles and aunts came over. They were so angry and acted like Mother should have all the answers to things she didn't know. They never found his EpiPen. Oh. Well, there's a lot there, I guess. Um, I didn't mean to dig into anything complicated or unpleasant. So, uh, it's probably better we just start the show. Yes. Episode 89, Dark Fairy Tales. The Girl with no hands. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including a uh, short bonus episode. We'll uh, also have new t-shirts out for members this summer, and I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. Pepi Gilmanity, 
In Eastern Orthodox art, there's a peculiar recurring detail that happens to fit our show's theme, a handless figure often included in icons of the Dormition of the Mother of God, that is, the Virgin's final sleep or funeral and journey to heaven. All these elements are represented concurrently in images, so along with the Virgin received at the gates of heaven, you have her depicted lying on her funeral bier, and next to this, the handless man, and next to him, the Archangel Michael brandishing a sword. The handless figure is Athonius, an unbeliever who, according to legend, out of sheer malice, attempted to overturn the virgin's coffin during the funeral procession, at which point the angel strikes off his hands, and sometimes the severed hands are also depicted, still grasping the edge of the coffin. But not to worry, this misadventure ends with St. Michael or St. Peter reattaching the hands and Athonius as a penitent convert with a special devotion to the Virgin. The uh, Byzantine hymn you're hearing, by the way, is sung each August 15th on the Feast of the Dormition. In this episode, we'll be looking at more stories of hand amputations and magical healings, uh, fairy tales classed by folklorists as an ATU-706. Uh, ATU stands for Arne Thompson Uther, uh, the folklorists who devised and refined this catalog of recurring motifs. 706, known as... Without hands. ...is filed under... Tales of Magic, number 300 through 749. Subsection. Other Tales of the Supernatural, number 700 through 749. Thanks to it being collected by the Brothers Grimm, the best-known example is their The Girl Without Hands, but it's hardly the oldest. Roughly three centuries before the Grimm's published their tale in 1812, a similar story had begun circulating in Italy, Biancabella, from Le Piacevoli Noti, or The Pleasant Nights, a book published in two volumes between 1550 and 1553, and it's in the first. Not much is known about the book's author, Giovanni Francesco Straparola, other than his living in Venice, but his book is clearly modeled on Boccaccio's Decameron, using a similar frame story involving characters passing their nights uh, pleasantly, hence the title, in the uh, telling of tales, roughly five nightly, totaling 75 stories over the course of the book. More than a dozen of these could be described as fairy tales, making it the uh, first such collection, the most famous of these being the original Puss in Boots. More than any other version of our handless tale, Biancabella is a long, involved, and lurid story, so we'll be devoting a fair bit of the show to it. Um, it's set in northern Italy, in Piedmont, in the territory of Monferrato, ruled by the Marquis Lamberico, but begins with his wife, who, one day while out walking in her garden, is overcome by a strange sleep, during which there crept up to her side a very small snake, which, having passed stealthily under her clothes without arousing her by its presence, made its way into her body, and by subtle windings penetrated even into her womb, and there lay quiet. Bianca Bella is the child conceived of this coupling, born with a snake coiled three times round her neck. Slithering away from the infant, it leaves in its place a strange mark, at first sounding like a fine gold collar, but later described as a more subtle marking that... 
seemed to shed its luster from between the skin and the flesh, just as the most precious jewels are wont to shine out from a closure of transparent crystal. Given the name Bianca Bella, or White Beauty, the infant is remarkable for her godliness and beauty that it seemed as if she must be sprung from divine stock. At the age of ten, she is one day walking in her mother's private garden where she encounters a snake. She's about to cry out when the creature speaks. Cry not, I beg you. Neither disturb yourself, nor have any fear, for know that I am your sister, born on the same day as yourself and at the same birth, and that Samaritana is my name, and I now tell you that if you will be obedient to what I shall command you, I will make you happy in your life. But if, on the other hand, you disobey me, you will come to be the most luckless, most wretched woman the world has ever yet seen. Samaritana also commands that on the next day she bring to the garden two vessels of which let one be filled with pure milk and the other with the finest water of roses. When Bianca Bella arrives with the requested vessels, the snake came near to her and straightway commanded her to strip off all her clothes and then, naked as she was, to step into the vessel which was filled with milk. When she had done this, the serpent twined itself about her, thus bathing her body in every part with the white milk and licking her all over with its tongue, rendering her pure and perfect in every part, where peradventure aught that was faulty might have been found. After this, she is instructed to bathe in the rose water, completing the ritual by which the serpent has ensured that no other woman in all the world should be found to equal Bianca Bella, in beauty or in grace. And there's a further sign attesting to the child's remarkable status when her mother took a comb and began to comb and dress her daughter's fair locks, and forthwith from the girl's hair there fell down pearls and all manner of precious stones. And when Bianca Bella went to wash her hands, Roses and violets and lovely flowers of all sorts sprang up around them, and the odors which arose from these were so sweet that it seemed as if the place had indeed become an earthly paradise. Though her parents at first believed no suitor could ever be worthy of this remarkable girl's hand, when Farandino, king of Naples, comes courting, they reconsider their position and a wedding is arranged. But there are consequences for not consulting one's snake sister on such major decisions. Before departing for Naples, Bianca Bella visits her mother's garden in hopes of seeing Samaritina one last time, but the snake has disappeared, and with her, it seems, Bianca Bella's good fortune. In Naples, Bianca Bella must now grapple with the king's wrathful stepmother. Who had two daughters of her own, both of them deformed and ugly. But notwithstanding this, she had set her heart on marrying one of them to the king. She conceals her rage under a mask of affection until the king is one day called off to defend the borders of his land, whereupon she summoned into her presence certain retainers who were entirely devoted to her. She charged them to conduct Bianca Bella with them to some place or other, feigning that what they were doing was done for her recreation, and that they should not leave her until they had taken her life. Moreover, in order that she might be fully assured that they had discharged their duty, they were to bring back to her some sign of Bianca Bella's death. 
they carried her away into a wood and forthwith began to make preparation to kill her. But when they perceived how lovely she was and gracious, they were moved to pity and had not the heart to take her life. So they cut off both her hands and tore her eyes out of her head, and these they carried back to the stepmother as certain proofs that Bianca Bella had been killed by them. The ploy works, and the wicked stepmother then spreads through all the kingdom a report that both her own stepdaughters were dead. And that Bianca Bella is suffering from a fever herself, one which has so wasted her as to make her all but unrecognizable. When the king returns from the war, he's shown into Bianca Bella's chambers and is shocked to find her lying there. Shriveled, paled, and disfigured, he orders her attendants to see if they might not in some way help restore her. Unfortunately for the stepmother, who, of course, has substituted for Bianca Bella, one of her own daughters, this help to be offered would include combing the young woman's hair. But instead of producing the telltale crop of gems, the comb brings forth great worms which had been feeding on the wretched woman's flesh, and from the hands there came forth not the roses and the sweet-smelling flowers which ever sprang up around Bianca Bella's, but a foulness and filth which caused a nauseous sickness to all who came near her. The hideous change, the stepmother assures the suspicious king, must be nothing more than the transitory effects of her illness. In the meantime, the blind, handless Bianca Bella wanders the woods, eventually, however, stumbling into a kindly old man who invites her to his home. There's a peaceful interlude, but the young woman yearns to meet Samaritina again, hoping she might aid her in her plight. She talks the old man into returning her to the woods, where she is convinced her snake sister will be waiting. Reluctantly, he agrees, promising to later return. Bianca Bella's searching and calling for Samaritina, however, yield nothing, and in despair, she collapses by a pool of water and considers throwing herself in. At that moment, she hears her sister's voice calling her from the brink of despair. The snake shows herself, and Bianca Bella pours out her heart to Samaritina, who spake some comforting words, and then, having gathered diverse medicinal herbs of wonderful power and virtue, she spread these over the places where Bianca Bella's eyes had been. Then she brought to her sister two hands, and, having joined these on to the wounded wrists, at once made them whole and sound again. And when she had wrought this marvellous feat, Samaritana threw off from herself the scaly skin of the serpent and stood revealed as a maiden of lovely aspect. At this point, the old man returns and finds... Bianca Bella sitting beside a maiden well nigh as lovely as herself. Along with the old man and his family, Samaritina and Bianca Bella undertake a trip to Naples, a home, of course, to the king who is now living with the imposter Bianca Bella. As they arrive near his palace, the travelers stop for a moment as... Samaritana took in her hand a twig of laurel and thrice struck the earth therewith, uttering certain mystic words the while. And almost before the sound of these words had ceased, there sprang up forthwith before them a palace, the most beautiful and sumptuous that ever was seen. The king does happen to notice that a new palace has sprung up overnight next door, and when he pays a visit to his neighbors, his eye is especially caught by a woman bearing a striking resemblance to his wife, or his wife of the past, he invites his new neighbors to a banquet in his own palace. And on the night of the feast, after a sumptuous meal, Samaritina proposes a bit of entertainment in honor of their hosts. 
suggesting a performance by the old man's daughter, Silveri, who took her lyre and, having placed herself before the king, sang in a soft and pleasant voice while she touched the resounding strings with the plectrum, telling in her chant the story of Bianca Bella from beginning to end, but not mentioning her by name. When the whole of the story had been set forth, Samaritana again rose to her feet and demanded of the king what would be the fitting punishment, what torture would be cruel enough for those who had put their hands to such a detestable crime. Then the stepmother, who had deemed that she might perchance get a release for her misdeeds by a prompt and ready reply, did not wait for the king to give his answer, but cried out in a bold and confident tone, Surely to be cast into a furnace, heated red-hot, would be but a light punishment for the offenses of such a one. And then the reveal. Samaritina calls out the false Biancabella and, to confirm the identity of the true Biancabella, commands that her hair be combed to produce the shower of jewels as evidence. The king and his true wife then share a tearful embrace, and then comes the satisfying revenge as the king caused to be heated hot a furnace, and into this he bade them cast the stepmother and her two daughters. Thus their repentance for their crimes came too late, and they made a miserable end to their lives. Our next story is Penta the Handless from Il Pentamarone by Giambattista Basile, another book from Italy but uh, published almost a century later in 1634. We've uh, heard at least one other story from the collection uh, in the Lover's Head episode, and some of you may recognize the Pentamarone by its subtitle, which translates from the Neapolitan as The Tale of Tales, the title of a wonderful 2015 film by Matteo Garone, who also directed the uh, lovely uh, 2019 Pinocchio adaptation. This uh, collection of stories also makes use of the framing device, having the stories told by a group of courtiers attempting to cheer a melancholy princess. The title is a Greek coinage by Basile from uh, words meaning five and day, as that's how many tales are shared each night over ten days. Among the fifty stories included are the first written versions of Cinderella, Rapunzel, Sleeping Beauty, and Hansel and Gretel. Most of the stories are believed to be folk tales, though they're given a self-consciously literary treatment by the author, uh, You'll see what I mean when we hear some of his extravagantly baroque and amusing verbiage in the quoted passages upcoming. This one doesn't have the bestiality of Bianca Bella, but it does have incest, a not uncommon theme in fairy tales. The uh, guilty party in that respect is the king of the imaginary kingdom of Pretaseca, it's not entirely his fault, perhaps, as he has no wife. One day, the evil one entered his head and suggested that he should take his sister, Penta, to wife. When the sister reacts with horror at his suggestion, she uh, gets a rather cavalier response. Tis not a matter, oh my sister, says the king, suggesting that incest comes with the advantage of familiarity, or in the language of Basile, one knoweth not how it will be when one alloweth strange people to put their feet in one's house. Somehow this fails to sell Penta on the idea, and she suggests he visit a priest to confess his vile thoughts, and she locks herself away in her room for more than a month during which her brother continues to court her through the bolted door, praising her beauty and, in particular, 
the beauty of her hands. Oh, hand, oh, beauteous hand, spoon which administereth the soup of sweetness. And as you may have guessed, Penta has a grim remedy in mind for this. She calls for a gullible servant, saying her hands require a special treatment. To make them beautiful in secret and wider. And that this treatment requires they be detached from her body. With two swift, clean blows, they are removed. Then she had them laid in a basin and sent them covered with a silken napkin to her brother with a message saying she hoped he would enjoy what he coveted most. As this was not exactly what he had in mind, the king waxed furious and ordered that a chest should be made straight away, well tarred on the outside and commanded that his sister should be put therein and cast into the sea. At some point, it washes ashore in another kingdom and is opened by a leader of that seaside community, Masiello, and his wife, Nuccia. The latter immediately becoming suspicious of her husband's eye for Penta's beauty. The instant Masiello happens to leave on an errand, Nusha seals Penta back into the casket and casts her adrift again. And we'll see Nusha's ever-present jealousy rear its ugly head later in our story. Anyway, the floating casket is next spotted by the crew of a ship owned by another king. He orders it hauled aboard and opened. Impressed by the lovely Penta, hands or no hands, he decides she would make an admirable servant to his queen. And so she's brought to the court. And she did all possible services to the queen, as so thread the needle, starch the collars, and comb the queen's hair with her feet. The queen, as it turns out, needs a lot of care, as she is gravely ill. And having become particularly fond of her handless servant, she begs the king to take her as his wife upon her passing. The wedding occurs shortly after the old queen's death, and the two conceive a child. But, as in our previous tale, the king is called away to tend to some affair abroad, and this provides opportunity for jealous meddling. The child is delivered, and a messenger is dispatched to the king with the news. His ship, however, happens to port in the very same seaside town where Penta's casket had washed up and was subsequently cast back into the waves by the evil Nucha, who happens to be washing her laundry at the seashore as the messenger arrives. Of course, she still carries ill will towards Penta. An inquiry of the messenger discovers he carries a letter regarding the birth of a child to her nemesis, Feigning hospitality, she invites him to her home and plies him with liquor till he passes out. She then slips the letter from his pocket, replacing it with one informing the king that the queen had given birth to a dog and they awaited his orders to know what they should do with it. After delivering this letter, the messenger on his return, wouldn't you know it, stops at this same port bearing the king's unflappable response, which only tells the courtiers they should keep the queen in cheerful spirits, for these things came through heaven's commandments. Repeating her same trick, Nucha then swaps out the original with her own letter, ordering that the recipients should burn at once mother and son. Well, that doesn't happen. The letter's recipients believe the king's gone mad and instead just exile the poor girl and her newborn from the kingdom. Her wanderings thankfully bring her to the home of a magician to whom she relates her whole sad tale. And this happens to give him an idea for a contest. He announces a storytelling competition intended to find the most tragic tale in all the land. 
Word reaches both the king and Penta's brother, who show up, each telling their tales involving Penta. And this is where the magician reveals the identity of the strange woman and her boy. Uh, not expecting her hands to have been restored, I suppose it made it somehow impossible for her to be recognized. Anyway, she returns with the king to his kingdom, and the brother is suitably penitent, and it's all happily ever after. No punishment for the meddlesome Nucha, unfortunately. Hitch a ride and careen across the countryside as the wonderful world of the Brothers Grimm sweeps you into an exciting new world of rollicking entertainment. And now to that wonderful world. Thus far, the tales we've discussed to some extent might be considered literary folk tales, uh, that is, stories that borrow from other sources, combining elements willy-nilly for the sake of an entertaining narrative, and so there's no attempt to preserve any story in its pristine, most traditional form. It's uh, quite likely that Basile borrowed the hand deputation and healing from Straparola, but for the sake of a more entertaining story, he's also mixed in other motifs, such as the floating casket or barrel trope, one that goes back to the Greek dramas of Euripides, or even to the infant Moses in the Old Testament. Uh, the uh, Grimm's collection, which came to a total of over 200 stories in their 7th edition, is noteworthy for its breadth, but is also unique at the time for its efforts to preserve traditional stories as uh, pristine cultural specimens, and in doing so, they invented the field of folklore studies as we know it. This uh, effort to capture stories as originally transmitted orally accounts for that distinctively uh, spare and simple language in which they're told. There, uh, the girl without hands, included in their first 1812 Kinder und Hausmärchen, children's and uh, household tales, that is, what we call Grimm's fairy tales, is therefore uh, far simpler than the stories we've thus far examined. It begins with a trickstery devil figure approaching a miller who's come upon hard times. The devil says to the miller, Why do you torment yourself so? I will make you rich if you will sign over to me that which is standing behind your mill. I will come and claim it in three years. Well, sounds like a good deal, right? But sadly, it's not the apple tree the devil had in mind, but the miller's daughter, who happened to be standing there at the time. After the passing of three years... The devil came early in the morning and wanted to take her, but she had drawn a circle around herself with chalk and had washed herself clean. Cleanliness is next to godliness, as the Germans say. The devil then scolds the miller, saying, Keep wash water away from her, so she cannot wash herself anymore, and I can have power over her. The frightened miller obeys, but when the devil arrives the next day, he finds that the poor girl has been weeping into her hands and washed herself with her tears. He angrily commands, Chop off her hand so I can get to her. As you would hope, there's a bit of hesitation here, but as the devil plans to drag off the miller in the daughter's stead, the brave girl is willing to sacrifice herself, saying, Father, she said, do with me what you will. Stretched forth her hands and let him chop them off. The devil came a third time, but she had wept so long onto her stumps that she was still entirely clean, and the devil had lost all power over her. Understandably, after this, the girl decides not to stay with her father any longer. She had the chopped off hands tied to her back, and she set forth with the rising sun, walking the entire day until evening until she came to the king's garden. There was a gap in the garden hedge. She went inside, found a fruit tree, 
shook it with her body until the apples fell to the ground, bent over and picked them up with her teeth and ate them. After sustaining herself like this for two days, she's apprehended by a watchman and brought to the king. As he's about to banish her, the prince has a suggestion. Wait, wouldn't it be better to let her tend the chickens in the courtyard? As it happens, the prince has been searching for a bride, and the girl has taken his fancy. The king and queen, though a bit taken aback by his choice at first, agree, and the two are wed. They conceive a child, and as in our earlier story, the prince is called away to war, at which point the child is born and a messenger dispatched with the news again. In this version, it's the devil who switches letters, first telling the prince his wife has birthed a changeling, and then swapping out the prince's response with a missive demanding the wife and child be driven from the kingdom, resulting in the girl's second exile. As she's out wandering in the woods one evening... She came to a place in a thick forest where a good old man was sitting by a spring. Be so kind-hearted as to hold my child to my breast until I have nursed him, she said. The man did that, after which he said to her, Go to that thicket tree over there and wrap your maimed arms around it three times. Apparently there's something magic about the old man, and this was all it took for her hands to be healed. Then the old man shows her a house, telling her that she can live there. And apparently this is a magical house, as in our previous tale, because at the end of the story it vanishes into thin air. The rest of the tale is not that interesting. The prince, who has now become king, stumbles upon his wife in the magical house and realizes he's been deceived by those letters, and returns with his wife and child to his kingdom. There are a number of variations of this tale from Germany, Austria, Italy, and Hungary, all of which were published later in the 1800s after the Grimm's version, and which substitute for the devil the mother of the handless girl, who is jealous of the attention paid the daughter by suitors. She also happens to keep an inn through which the messengers conveniently pass for the letter swap sequence. The way in which the girl loses her hands in these stories varies, but always involves the mother's nefarious scheming. In Beautiful Magdalena from Germany, it's the girl's arms that are chopped off below the elbow because her suitor has commented on the beauty of Magdalena's arms. The Italian version has two abortive murder attempts ordered by the mother. In both, the would-be killer box, first returning with a dog's heart as purported evidence of the deed, and when this fails, he returns from a second attempt with a more realistic token, the girl's actual hands. The Hungarian version is particularly gruesome, with the mother ordering her henchman to... Take her daughter into the wood and kill her, and to bring her liver, lungs, and two hands back with him. The henchman spares the girl's life, substituting the liver and lungs of a nearby dog, but he has to ask the girl to sacrifice her hands to complete the deception. When he returns with his basket of gory bits and pieces, the woman took the lungs and liver and put them into her mouth and said, You have come out of me. You must return into me and swallowed them. The two hands she threw up into the loft. The same motif, by the way, also occurs in the Grimm's original Snow White with the evil queen eating the hands and liver the huntsman brings back thinking, of course, they are Snow Whites rather than belonging to a, a boar. Now, uh, since we started our episode with some music from Eastern Orthodox lands, I thought we might end there in Russia with a Russian version of our tale and a bit of Russian music. The story, The Armless Maiden, is one of the nearly 600 folk tales, or skazi, contained in the multi-volume 
Russian fairy tales collected by the Russian state ethnographer Alexander Asanafiev between 1855 and 1863. We've uh, referenced his stories in our Baba Yaga, Rosalki, and uh, Bird Woman episodes, and probably others. The story begins with an orphaned brother and sister struggling to make their way through the world. The brother ends up supporting his sister as a shopkeeper, eventually earning enough to look for a bride. Unfortunately, he chooses a wicked sorceress for this role. The witch is unhappy sharing the house with the sister. The ill feelings escalate through a number of accidental snubs, and one day when her husband leaves for his shop, the sorceress broke all the furniture, and when her husband came back, she met him and said, See what a sister you have. She has broken all the furniture in the house. Too bad, but we can get new things, said the husband. Infuriated by his indifference, she ups the ante. The wife bided her time, went to the stables, and cut off the head of her husband's favorite horse with a saber. She awaited him on the porch. See what a sister you have. She has cut off the head of your favorite horse. Ah, let the dogs eat what is theirs, answered the husband. Finally, when the sorceress and shopkeeper have a child, the witch makes her most vicious move. When the wife gave birth to her child, she cut off his head. When the husband came home, he found her sitting and lamenting over her baby. See what a sister you have! No sooner had I given birth to my baby than she cut off his head with a saber! The husband does not say anything. He wept bitter tears and turned away. Night came. At the stroke of midnight, he rose and said, Little sister, make ready. We are going to Mass. She said, My beloved brother, I do not think it is a holiday today. Yes, my sister, it is a holiday. Let us go. It is still too early to go, brother, she said. No, he answered. Young maidens always take a long time to get ready. The sister began to dress. She was very slow and reluctant. Her brother said, Hurry, sister, get dressed. Please, she said, it is still early, brother. No, little sister, it is not early. It is high time to be gone. When the sister was ready, they sat in a carriage and set out for mass. They drove for a long or a short time. Finally, they came to a wood. The sister said, wood is this? He answered, this is the hedge around the church. The carriage caught in a bush. The brother said, get out little sister, disentangle the carriage. Oh, my beloved brother, I cannot do that. I will dirty my dress. I shall buy you a new dress, sister, a better one than this. She got down from the carriage, began to disentangle it. And her brother cut off her arms to the elbows, struck his horse with the whip, and drove away. Thus begins the armless maidens wandering through fields and woods, eventually reaching a market town where she catches the eye of the son of a wealthy merchant. As in our other stories, the parents at first discourage the choice, but to allow a wedding, and a child is conceived, and the young man forced abroad on business leaves his pregnant and armless wife in his parents' care. Two or three months after the son left, his wife gave birth to a child. His arms were golden up to the elbows. His sides were studded with stars. There was a bright moon on his forehead and a radiant sun on his heart. The grandparents were overjoyed and at once 
wrote their beloved son a letter. But the old sorceress, of course, gets word of the birth and intercepts the message, substituting a letter saying, Your wife, it said, has given birth to a half-dog, half-bear, that she conceived with beasts in the woods. When the husband sends back the sort of nonplussed response we've seen in these other stories, the witch again intercepts the letter, swapping it with one ordering the parents to drive the woman and son from the home. They do, with deep regrets. As our handless heroine wanders on her second exile, she came to a dale and was very thirsty. She looked to the right and saw a well. She wanted a drink from it, but was afraid to stoop lest she drop her baby. Then she fancied that the water came closer. She stooped to drink, and her baby fell into the well. At which point an old man appears and inquires, Why are you weeping? How can I help weeping? I stooped over the well to drink water, and my baby fell into it. Bend down and take him out. No, little father, I cannot. I have no hands, only stumps. Do as I tell you. Take your baby. She went to the well, stretched out her arms, and miracle, for suddenly she had hands all whole. And she's able to rescue her son. After profusely thanking the old man, she wanders on, eventually coming to the home of her brother and his wicked wife. There she asks for shelter. Not expecting to see her, much less with intact arms, they take her for a mere beggar. The witch wants nothing to do with hospitality, but her husband insists, saying, There is nothing I like better than to hear beggar women tell tales. And so, without naming names, the tale she tells recapitulates her own story. With its telling, the wife grows increasingly nervous, grumbling, Why does she bore us with her stories, that hag? And... What is this old bitch gibbering about? Finally, our formerly armless heroine reveals her true identity and that of the baby, who is not at all a half-dog, half-bear monster, but instead has those golden, starry arms and all that glittery stuff. There's much rejoicing, and then, my favorite part, the punishment of the scheming wife. It's a good one. The brother took the best mare from his stable, tied his wife to its tail, and let it run in the open field. The mare dragged her on the ground until she brought back only her braid. The rest was strewn on the field. Then they harnessed three horses and went home to the young husband's father and mother. They began to live happily and to prosper. And with that, we'll close the storybook and leave you, as promised, with a snippet of Russian music. It's from an electronic band from Moscow, a duo making music since 2013 under the name I Speak. The song, which I'll link to in the show notes along with the delightful animated video, struck me as particularly appropriate as it's called Fairy Tale and begins with the lines translated as I'm from a Russian horror fairy tale Russian horror fairy tale
I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. We could really use one of those. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out thanks to the support of our lovely Patreon subscribers. When you contribute through Patreon, you're contributing towards the more than 100 hours I end up putting into each of these shows. Pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive a short extra episode, a reading from something in our library, given the bone and sickle soundscape treatment also. Other rewards include access to our Patreon blog, downloads of the show soundscapes heard under the narration, show scripts, my Krampus book, the mystical bone and sickle candle, and unique hand-packed mystery kits. We'll also have new t-shirts available exclusively to our patrons. I have uh, posted the design on boneandsickle.com, along with further details on what you can order. Our latest crop of supporters, whom I'd very much like to thank, include Gertie Bird, who's a friend who performs as a hurdy-gurdy musician under that name and is active also with the uh, Montal Festival in Cornwall, celebrates uh, traditional midwinter customs. Also, Diego Herrera, Steph Stanaway, and I want to thank Darren Dumas for upping his pledge. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.